Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, now offering three FDA-approved therapies for different forms of lung cancer with more in the pipeline. When it comes to lung cancer treatment, one size does not fit all. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about international differences in breast cancer surgery with Dr. Selena Baines. Dr. Baines is a visiting surgeon from the United Kingdom, and Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. Selena, welcome to Yale. Um, I know that you've been here for about a week or so. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about yourself and about how medical training actually works in the UK for those of us who have spent most of our lives here in the US. Okay, so um, we have high school equivalent like you have here, but then out of high school, so at the age of 17 or 18, you um, decide what subjects you're going to study and then you apply to university. Um, Now, we can only put down five different universities. You fill out a personal statement, you have your predicted grades and then off go the application forms. Now, for medical school and dental school, you have to have a face-to-face interview. So if they like you, they'll invite you for interview and then give you an offer with the grades that they want you to get. So when you get your results of your A-levels, um, you will then know whether you get your place at university or not. So so this is really like straight out of high school. Yep. You do these A-level exams. Yep. <laughs> uh, kind of like final exams here, except national standardized Absolutely. exams. Yeah. Uh, kind of like your SAT, I suppose. A- and then beyond just getting into college, like undergrad, figure out what you're going to do and figure out what sorority or fraternity you're going to be in and what your extracurricular activities are going to be. Yep. This is really, you're entering medical school. Absolutely. Right off the bat. Yep. So into the dissecting room, people fainting, um, into the hospital actually pretty soon. So even within the first semester, you will have medical students that are on the wards having a look around and trying to figure out what's going on. Do you find that intimidating um, or is it like really exciting? I I can't figure out what that would be like. (laughs) I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, We have postgraduate students as well and they seem a lot more clued up and, you know, they know that you know they really want to be where they are. Whereas when you're 18 years old, I think a lot of the times you've got no idea what you've let yourself in for. I mean, from a personal point of view, I'd done the shadowing at hospitals. I'd gone to my GP surgery, the like family practitioner. And then you start and you think, I've got no idea what's going on. So it it is a little bit intimidating, but there's a lot of people in the same boat. So you're kind of, you know, you're all in it together, really. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So you enter medical school. and and you didn't do any undergrad college, so it's really straight into medical school. How long is medical school? It's usually five years. Some universities have six years, um, and you can take a year out in the middle to do um, kind of an intercalated degree. But on the whole, it's five years. And then you're done, you graduate, and you hit the floor as a junior doctor. Wow. Okay, so in the U.S., it's four years, and you can you can add on a year if you want to do another degree or if you want to mm-hmm. do research. So it's a year extra. Yeah. And then when you graduate medical school, how does it work? What happens then? 
Then you are a foundation year doctor. So for two years, it's um, it's kind of core skills that they want you to pick up. So cannulation, clerking in patients, and there's competencies that you have to kind of get signed off. So that's for two years. And during that two years or towards the end of that two years, you decide whether you want to be a pathologist or you want to go into medicine or you want to go into surgery. And then your training will go at a different branch depending on what you want to do. So it sounds like those two years after you graduate medical school is really like a rotating internship. Absolutely. So four-month blocks. Four-month blocks. So yeah. you do, and they're standardized. Is that right? Like you do you do psychiatry and you do OBGYN and you do pediatrics yeah. so that you kind of get a taste of everything. Yeah, so just to make things even more complicated, there are different rotations. So you can have some that are surgery heavy, some that are general practice heavy. So you then, when you um, are in your kind of um, end of medical school, I think you then select also where you want to go and rank the jobs that you want. So there's a kind of national process to uh, to rank the jobs that you want. But the aim is that you're doing very generic stuff. So you will do, you have to do some medicine, you have to do some surgery, but what exactly the specialty is will vary depending on where you go. Got it. Whereas here, a lot of that kind of looking around, getting on the wards, doing blocks and rotations um, is built into your medical school. So in fact, while you've got a five-year medical school, that additional two years is kind of um, what we would probably include in medical school in the sense of being that more generic rotations thing. And then when do you decide, in that two years, you decide, I want to be a surgeon? Is that right? Yeah. Sometimes people have decided beforehand. So you may be at medical school and you think, you know what, I wanted to be a surgeon. And you'll gear what you do according to what you want to do. Right. Um, but, but in that in that two-year block, you're still forced to do oh, yes. medicine. Absolutely. Even if you're a diehard yep. surgeon. Yeah. I'm with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So so then in the in those two years, you you say, I want to do surgery. Yes. And what happens then? So then you apply for core surgical training, and that's two years. So we call it core, core year one and two. Okay. And that is, again, it's a rotational type thing, but it will be surgery. surgery. Yes. And then what? And then once you've completed those two years, so that's a competitive process to get to the core medical training. Um, and then at the end of your core medical training, you will then apply for your specialty. So, for example, general surgery is different to orthopedics, which is different to urology. So at that point, you will apply for higher surgical training in whichever specialty you want to, to go for. And how long is that? So that depends on the specialty. But for surgery, it is um, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, six years. <laughs> I had to, I had to count. <laughs> <laughs> Another six years on top of the two, two, two years, years of course. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So in fact, in case anybody was just blown away by the fact that people enter medical school straight out of high school, because <laughs> I know some of our listeners might have been blown away by that. Uh, I know I was. Um, it actually ends up being about the same. It's yes. just that you end up getting your medical training much earlier mm-hmm. because, in fact, those two core years of surgery would be kind of like the first two years of our residency. Yes. Yeah. But then we only need to do three more years of surgery and then that's it. Then you're a general surgeon. Exactly. And then if you want to do fellowship, that's extra. But yeah. that's 
three years, whereas you have an additional six years. Yes. Um, and so does that make you then a breast surgeon or does that make you a general surgeon? A little bit of both, really. So we're all as part, breast surgery is part of general surgery. So okay. we are trained to be general surgeons with a specialist interest in breast. So in the last two years of my general surgical training, it was purely breast surgery that I was doing. Cool. So I was doing general surgery on call. So your emergencies, your appendixes and your dead gut and everything else. But breast surgery was my day job. So that was for two years of doing what my bosses were doing. Okay. Clinics and theatres. Cool. So that's kind of like... Um, for us, you would do an extra year or two of breast surgery as a fellowship. So it, it adds up to about the same. It does. Yeah. And then what happens after that? So you can do a fellowship, which is what I've done. Um, yep. So I'm doing an oncoplastic fellowship, like you mentioned. And it's almost fine tuning of all the skills that you've been picking up over the years. And also it takes you off the on-call rotor, which, yeah. is, which is brilliant. Because you find that a third of the time you're not with your firm. So your continuity of care is not there. You'll operate on a patient and then you might not see them again because you've then rotated around your on-call. So it's really great to just see your patients day in, day out, go to the clinics. And it, you just feel like you really belong as part of the unit rather and disappearing off to a different hospital and, and being on call. I see. Um, but then because of the way that breast training is going in the UK with the oncoplastic surgery that is very kind of widespread now, there's a there's a thought that, well, we don't really need a fellowship because you've got those skills by the end of your training anyway. Yeah. And now that things have moved on so much, the fellowship, yes, of course you can do it, but it's not necessary. And I know some fantastic consultants who haven't done a fellowship and they've been my bosses and they've been you know, as good as the ones who have done the fellowship or haven't. So it's a so bit So do you of, regret doing it? No, I love my fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fantastic. I mean, mine's a, a national fellowship. So there are only 10 across the country and uh, you get extra time out to do coming to Yale, for example, yeah. for two weeks. And you don't always have that flexibility. So my boss at the QE told me, he said, enjoy this year, you know, do what you want to do. Go out, experience things, go to whichever unit you want to go to and just get the most out of, you know, the fellowship because that's what it's there for. Yeah. Reality will start soon. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what he said. Enjoy it whilst you can. <laughs> so, so you do this fellowship in Oncoplastics and I want to talk a little bit about Oncoplastics in a minute. But then after the fellowship, then what happens? then you'll be applying for a consultant job. Um, and I had an interview the week before I came to Yale and I secured a post at the Queen Elizabeth in Birmingham. So I'll be starting as a consultant at the end of my fellowship. Awesome. Con <laughs> congratulations. Thank so, you. So a consultant is kind of like an attending surgeon yes. here. Yes. So now you'll be teaching fellows and residents. Absolutely. And so on. Yeah. Which will be very <laughs> exciting. So, so tell us a little bit more about oncoplastics. Certainly that's something that has picked up here in the U.S. as mm -hmm. well, but perhaps not to the degree that it really has in the U.K. So tell us a little bit more about what is oncoplastics, what was the training like, um, that kind of thing. Yeah, so... I think it's a, it seems to be a relatively new thing with the oncoplastics and essentially it's tying in the cancer surgery with the aesthetic side of things. And we have, um, I mean, the, the philosophy is that your cancer surgery is the most important. The aesthetics is important, but not as important as your cancer surgery. So you won't compromise on the cancer resection just so that you can get a better result. So that's fundamental really to all oncoplastic surgery. And... 
I think that there's a variability in the resources available in different hospitals. So, for example, in the bigger units, you've got plastic surgeons there who can do your reconstructive surgery. And like you have here, you have the breast surgeons doing the cancer side and then your plastic surgeons take over and do the plastic side. Whereas in the UK, it was thought that if the resources aren't there, this is work that we can do. We're trained as surgeons and this is a skill that we can all develop. Mm-hmm. And so it started off, I think, with the kind of breast conserving surgery. So also known as lumpectomies or partial mastectomies. And there are some patients who are perhaps larger breasted who can benefit from oncoplastic procedures because you can maintain a shape of the breast, which albeit won't be the same size, but it will still be the form of a breast rather than leaving an aesthetically unpleasing, scarred and deformed breast. Mm -hmm. And I think it started with just slight smaller oncoplastic procedures so just mobilizing the breast tissue to fill the gap to start with Mm -hmm. and then it was thought well hang on we can do wider procedures so for example in breast reductions if anybody's ever seen these done there are massive dissections that are done and then the breast is put back together in a smaller shape and that's pretty much what we do with the oncoplastic procedures so if you have got uh, a breast where you will remove an area of tissue you can move around it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle you can put things back together so the patient's left with their own tissue and a breast that again maybe smaller but then you can symmetrize the other side as well and so the patients are left with something which their cancer has been removed they will have their treatment but they're left with a breast rather than no breast which is what used to happen before if there were larger tumors right and so so you would do the symmetrizing procedure at the same time yes yeah you can do it can be that you may not have team members to help you in which case the procedure might be a little bit longer but it's always nicer to have the procedure done in one sitting for the patient so they don't end up lopsided because it can be quite a marked difference between the sizes so the patients leave hospital you know matching which is nice for them. Fantastic. Well, we're going to learn more about oncoplastics and how the UK is similar or different from the US in terms of breast cancer surgery right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about perspectives in breast surgery with my guest, Dr. Selena Baines. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about survivorship. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. For cancer survivors, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and some survivors face long-term side effects resulting from their treatment including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources are available to help keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, who comes all the way from the UK, Dr. Selena Baines. We're talking about international differences in breast cancer surgery. And before the break, we were talking about differences in the educational system and this whole revolution in oncoplastic surgery, really, which is a new technique um, that has been taking hold here in the U.S. as well to really try to make cancer surgery cosmetic as well. So we were talking a little bit, Selena, about how there, oftentimes a breast surgeon will do the symmetrizing procedure on the other side. Whereas here, we often use our plastic surgeon's 
um, to do that. Tell us a little bit more about other differences. I wonder, you know, the other place where I think the two systems may vary is really in terms of how the healthcare systems themselves are set up. Yeah. Um, so how how is the healthcare system set up in <laughs> in the UK? Because we hear all about the NHS, and yes. um, you know, and part of it I think is. Um, uh, rumors and part of it is true, <laughs> but we live in our healthcare system and we're always looking across the pond mm -hmm. to see whether the grass is greener. So, is it? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> sitting here with you, I don't want to say, but um, well, we have the National Health Service, which is an amazing service. And I'm biased because I'm from England uh, and I work in the system, but it's amazing. So it was in 1948 that this was founded. And the thing about the NHS is that it's free at the point of delivery. So that means anybody can walk into the general practitioner or into hospital and whatever care they need, they will not be paying anything for it at all. Not a dime. Not a dime. No. Or a penny. So, um, wow. yeah, no, exactly. And Times are becoming difficult because healthcare is becoming more expensive. Um, everyone is driving, you know, all the standards to be very high, which is good, which is what we want. But that all costs money and it requires resources. So it is very difficult sometimes to try and keep the service efficient as well as keeping a high quality. And that's a challenge that a lot of clinicians and managers are facing right now. But in terms of what we do, so say, for example, a, a patient notices a lump or some abnormality or they think that they may have something that's not quite right, they will go and see their general practitioner. If the general practitioner su suspects cancer, whether that's breast cancer or skin cancer, they refer to the hospital and they have to be seen in the hospital within two weeks. So, so this whole concept of, you know, the NHS has really... Uh, yes, the care is free, but uh, you have to wait in terrible long lines. And that is all rubbish. Is that right? There's a different story to that in that they're probably talking about emergency emergency department. So we have a four hour target in the emergency department. So from when you walk in the door, you should be seen by somebody within four hours. Now, because of the problems within the NHS at the moment, there's a delay sometimes in patients being seen in the emergency department. And you, I'm sure, have seen the headlines with patients in trolleys waiting in corridors. And that's something that is not great, to be honest. It's, it's, not, it's not something that we're proud of at the moment, but everybody's working really hard to try and see what we can do to try and minimise that. I'll tell you, Selena, there are people who have waited for four hours in emergency rooms <laughs> in the US. And the people who are listening know that that's true. Yeah. So, so how is healthcare paid for? I mean, is 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 taxation astronomical in the UK? Like somebody's got to pay the bill. Yeah. So it comes from our taxes, um, and it, the government has given us a budget for the year, um, and then that's given to the Department of Health, and then it's all filtered down to where the money needs to go. Um, the taxation isn't isn't as bad as I think some countries have. Um, so the higher rate of tax, which is at 40%, is when you earn over £45,000. So it's not that everybody's having to pay 40% of their salary on tax. Everybody will always say that they're being taxed too much, but if you want to have good services, then you need to be willing, I think, to be giving the money for those services because there's unfortunately not an infinite amount of money to go around. Yeah. You know, that's interesting because... Our highest bracket is still around 39%. Mm -hmm. 
And our health care is not free. And in fact, <laughs> in fact, um, health care costs are, are one of the biggest propellers of uh, bankruptcy in this country. So uh, clearly we need to be doing some learning um, as to how the U.K. works. But I understand that in the U.K., uh, it it's not that everybody uh, goes to the NHS, that there's also a private system. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So there is the option there to go privately and pay yourself. Um, Why would you do that if the NHS is so wonderful? <laughs> Some people like the nicer rooms. Um, there are chefs that come with a white hat on and uh, come and give you, you know, silver service for your dinner. And some people like that. And I think that if there is... If there are some things like, for example, hernia repair, which isn't a major operation, you can go have it done, have your fancy dinner, go home. Great. But if you've got cancer, I think the NHS is the best place to be. Really? Yes. Because? Because of the standards that have, are, are met by the hospitals across the board, because of the seamlessness that exists and the standardisation of care. So, for example, um, we were chatting last week about the tumour board meeting that you had, and I explained that... Any patient with cancer is discussed in our multidisciplinary team meeting. So every single patient is discussed. So, for example, in a typical week, uh, we have a two-hour meeting and we discuss somewhere between 50 to 60 patients in that two hours. And that's every single person that's come to us and has had a biopsy or had a mammogram. And we have then, you know, we're going to be following them, following them up in clinic with a plan as to what we're doing with them. So the standards are set for the NHS, but in the private system, they don't necessarily have to adhere to the same standards? There's now a change in that to make sure that there is this standardization, because what you don't want is some maverick clinician yeah. who's doing whatever they want to do. And there have been occasions when that has happened. And so now there is a big move to make sure that people are accountable for what they're doing. They need to know what their revision rates are, what their re-excision rates are. And that's something that should be in the public arena so that everybody knows what they're getting when they go and see a certain person. Well, that's fantastic. The other thing is, is that in the UK, you have this body called NICE that really sets these standards. Tell us more about that and whether you feel that that is beneficial in terms of being evidence-based and uh, guiding policy or whether you find it constricting. I think the different specialties will have different different opinions on it. And I think one of the problems that we face as clinicians is that there is such an evolution in what is happening. So every day there will be a new paper, there will be a new study, there will be a new technique that we can use. And sometimes these bodies can be a little bit behind the times. Mm -hmm. So that I think some clinicians feel is a little restrictive because they've seen or they've seen the evidence to say, this is what we need to be doing. But until your body of... Um, kind of guidance tells you, well, yeah, we're going to allow the funding for that. You may feel that you're a little bit behind the times from what your colleagues may be doing across the pond or, you know, in Europe. Right. But uh, otherwise, um, NICE really does kind of dictate policy. Uh, but it does that also based on cost, right? Yes. So again, we have got limited resources. So they will look at clinical effectiveness and also look at monetarily, is this something that is worth it? And that's very difficult because what price do you put on someone's life? Um, so I think they have to make some very tough decisions, but the decisions they make are such that they want there to be equity across the country. So it's not that you get a postcode lottery right. where in a certain postcode, they're a little bit more affluent, they've got a little bit more money, they will end up with different drugs to somewhere 
in a city where they don't have the resources. So that is the aim, I think, of of NICE. Right, which is very different from here where we really don't have that kind of a body um, and we really don't have that kind of equity. There is huge disparities between people who have and people who have not, Mm -hmm. between the insured and the uninsured, between the wealthy and the impoverished. And and I think that that's another place where um, we can actually do a lot better. But it does lead to controversy. So, for example, when we have bodies, for example, like the United States Preventative Services Task Force, which looks at screening and says this is cost effective, this is not cost effective and comes up with guidelines, there are then a bunch of professional bodies that will say, well, we agree or we don't agree or we don't mm-hmm. think that you should put a price tag on screening and so forth. Yes. Whereas in the UK, you have pretty standardized Absolutely. recommendations for screening. Yes, we do. So. Just for our listeners, because I know we discussed this last week, but tell us about screening in the UK and how that works and... and, yeah. So for the general population, um, screening used to be from the ages of 50 to 70. There's a bit of an age extension trial going on at the moment. So we're screening from 47 to 73. And patients come for mammograms every three years. And I know that's very different from here. Yeah. Um, and then after the age of 73, patients can choose to um, have mammograms done, but it's not that they'll be routinely requested to come and, and have mammograms done. And so do women in the UK knowing that in the US, you know, many of many women are recommended to get mammograms every year, do they push back and say, Selena, Dr. Baines, why am I only getting a mammogram every three years? No, on the whole, I've not found that to be the case um, at all, really. And Unfortunately, it's not that everybody even comes for their mammogram. So we aim for just over 70%. And that's probably about what we're hitting in terms of the people that actually come for screening, which I think is quite similar to here, isn't it? Yeah. So so the interesting thing is that here we'll get a lot of pushback Mm -hmm. uh, when the new guidelines come out. Um, But the truth of the matter is that not everybody comes annually for their mammograms anyways because I mean it's another trip to the hospital and to the clinic and then there's parking and you have to take time off of work (laughs) and uh, who wants all of that and a lot of people are just too busy or they just don't think about it. The other thing that I found interesting was what happens after screening just in terms of the efficiency of your clinics. Tell us more about that. So somebody comes for a mammogram and an abnormality is seen. What happens then? Um, the images will be reviewed, so they'll be recalled, um, and they may need to have um, mag views done to look in more detail, or then they'll have biopsy done. But everything that we do, we've got a strict timeline that we've got to stick to. Um, so we've got, for example, a 31-day target. So whether it's um, uh, a breast cancer or a skin cancer, you've got 31 days from when you decide that you're going to treat a patient to when you have to do their treatment. And we've got to meet it's over, I think, 90% that you have to make sure that you've operated or treated over 90% of patients within that time frame. And is that completion of treatment or is that just the initiation? Just the initiation. So it may be we start endocrine treatment or chemotherapy beforehand, and that will count as a treatment. Mm-hmm. And so, so when we talk about treatment in the UK... Um, all of your treatment is covered. So that includes your chemotherapy, your surgery, your radiation, everything. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. What about, do you have issues in terms of people living in remote areas and having access 
to the hospitals, to the radiation facilities and so on? Yeah, so where I've been working in a city, Birmingham or, or in Leicester, where I did my training as well, um, that's not so much of an issue. But when you go out to, say, Scotland, you find that for some patients, for example, tra- travelling for their radiotherapy, it's very difficult because they live so far away. Um, and I think that in those areas, you could say, well, the care isn't exactly the same as when you're in a city. So there is that issue there. But I don't think it's as marked as it is here, here in, the, in yeah. the US. And so let's talk a little bit about outcomes. So patients come and they get treatment. How well do they do? I mean, do we have a comparator of how people do in the UK versus in the US and what the treatments are like in the UK versus in the US? I mean, are you doing everything that we're doing? Um, I think so. I think so. Um, because we've got our guidelines there, we're a little limited as to what exactly we're going to do. But I think in terms of our health outcomes, I think they're similar to the US. But I think the US and the UK are not doing as well as some of the countries in Europe, for example. I hope I'm not misquoting, but I've been looking at how much we spend on our G- how much of our GDP is spent on cancer treatment, for example. And I, I know that the UK spend a little bit less than the US, but I think our outcomes are quite similar. Dr. Selena Baines is a visiting surgeon from the United Kingdom. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.